There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm really excited. It's me and Christopher and we have a subject that I haven't delved into for a really long time, but Chris can tell you all about it. Chris, here we got on. And a subject I haven't touched in about 25 years. Um, so we have uh, Yvonne Mason, who is an archaeologist who specialises in early humans and their migrations from Africa, as well as early human life in the British Isles, and is currently a member of the Richmond Archaeology Society. So Yvonne, welcome to History Hack. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad to be here. We haven't had archaeology in a while. I think the last person that I dragged on here was one of my former lecturers, but we're going to do it again. We're going to do a bit more archaeology. We don't do enough archaeology. So if anybody out there is listening and you are an archaeologist, come and get to us. We want some more archaeology, don't we, Chris? Uh, yeah, absolutely. He says, oh. gritting his teeth. <laughs> I won't tell you what I said last, what I said last night. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't say that in public. Do not say no. that in public. <laughs> Okay, Yvonne, listen, we're going to kick off with the first question, because we've we've been talking about humans originating in the area of Africa, but when did they actually first migrate to Europe and the UK? Well, it's absolutely amazing, the early dates we have for Europe um, and the western part of Asia, um, they crop up. Um, if you go to a small village called Damanisi in Georgia, which, as you know, was part of the old Soviet Union, but um, it's virtually, nah, I think you can say Georgia is virtually in Europe. Um, and you delve down under some of the houses in Demanisi, um, you can come across some very ancient skulls. And they, when they started digging these skulls up some time ago, they realised that, here, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't people like us. These skulls look very peculiar and, um, you know, brought in some experts. Experts had a look and said, my goodness, these are hominins. These, these are not, this isn't homo sapiens. What are they doing in Georgia? <laughs> and, um, they've managed to date them and they come out at sort of 1.85 1.77 million years old and they've got as far as Georgia from Africa by whatever route now they think that they started migrating out of Africa perhaps about then perhaps a little bit before then say a few thousand years before then 
um, and they probably came up through the Middle East, you know, via that neck just at the top of Egypt and along there and on across Arabia, across Mesopotamia, on into uh, Asia and up around the Black Sea into Europe. Um, now, we know that they were in Europe because they were here. We had a project that's now ended because I think the money ran out, which was called the Ancient Human Occupation of Britain Project, the AHOB. And it was done really under the aegis of the Natural History Museum. Several of their experts were involved in it, like Chris Stringer. You've probably seen him on TV a lot. Nick Ashton, his um, fantastic experts on ancient humans. And they heard that this ha ancient hand axe had been he uh, found in Norfolk. So up they go. And um, now Norfolk is that highly eroding coast where people's houses are dropping into the sea. You've probably seen pictures of them. The cliffs are just disappearing because the cliffs are actually made up of debris. And it turns out that this debris is full of really ancient stuff, not not just, you know, bones, remains, but uh, really ancient clays and silts and so on. And this hand axe had leached out of this cliff. So they started digging around on the beach. They started digging around under the cliff. And what did they find? But really ancient tools of the, the sort used by really ancient people like in Africa, chopping tools, hand axes, and so on. They have, then they started geologically dating the silts and so on that these things were in. And they came out to, with dates. And the dates were 950 to 850,000 years ago. You're talking nearly a million years ago, these people were in Britain. So if they were in Britain, they were in Europe. So not long ago then? Not long ago. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm really sorry to interrupt you. I've got to say, it's very interesting when you look at your margins. So, for example, for modern history, for us now, we can say, oh, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years margin. You've got thousands, a thousand years, 2,000 year margins within, you know, I find that really interesting when it comes to prehistory. Indeed. Well, you've got something in more, on more modern digs, but still going back quite quite a long way, you know, like several thousand years. You've now got something called Bayesian analysis. Now, Bayes was a mathematician in the 18th century who devised a new way of putting statistics together where you threw everything into the soup and mixed it all up and, and got results that way. And the archaeologist said, well, look, an archaeological dig is like a soup of stuff. And we've only been so far doing things like radiocarbon analysis, which is not very accurate. You can only get things down to a few thousand years. So they started throwing everything in. And in some excavations, they got things down to a decade. 
a human lifetime. That's impressive. So this is ongoing. They're, you know, getting more and more sophisticated with their dating. So, yeah, dating is getting more and more precise. Sorry for interrupting you about uh, about, <laughs> about, about uh, Neanderthals in, uh, I'm losing my brain now, in, in Great Britain. Sorry, I cut your flow off. I'm going to let you continue. That's all right. Okay, that's okay. Neanderthals, well, what an interesting bunch they are. There is no Neanderthal DNA in Africa. They were never in Africa. They, they evolved entirely outside of Africa. So this is post-diaspora, post-people leaving Africa. But it must have been from the first diaspora from Africa that they evolved from. Because they, they've been around, the Neanderthals have been around for at least half a million years. The last reporting ev- reported evidence of Neanderthals is down to about 35,000 years, and after that, nothing. So we think they evolved from one of these early hominins, possibly Homo heidelbergensis or Homo antecessor, two of the early species which came into Europe and Asia. And what they lived perfectly happily for thousands of years. They were in Asia, they were in Europe, they were in Britain. Suddenly they disappear. The last reported sighting of them is at Gibraltar in a cave called Gorham's Cave in the cliffs there where they were living quite happily, apparently for hundreds of years, hunting. It's even thought that some of the feathers that they found in these in the cave, they were using to decorate themselves with. You know, think American, American, Native Americans. Um, so they were living quite happily in Europe until this last little last settlement of them at Gorham's Cave, and then even that disappears. No Neanderthals left. But the interesting thing is, even even Australian Aborigines have Neanderthal DNA. So when the, the Aborigines were apparently part of the second a second diaspora that came out of Africa after Homo sapiens evolved in Africa. They then took a great long trek across Asia, reaching sort of East Asia, and then on across into the East Indies, which was easier to cross in those days, but you still needed to get across some bits of sea. So did they have boats? And then on into Australia by at least 50,000 years BC. But they have Neanderthal blood in them. So as they were crossing Asia, they must have met Neanderthals and interbred with them. So some of the Neanderthals uh sites that we found in Britain are very interesting. They're always with the 
extinct animals that we we find abounding in Britain in the, in the in those days. Um, usually, sorry, yes. what, what kind of animals, extinct animals, do we find in those excavations? We find mammoths. We find a large hyena. We find the woolly rhinoceros. Several different types of elephant that no longer exist. Oh, there was, um, hold on. There were seven different types of elephant. That several, didn't... several different types of elephant. Like the straight tusked elephant that no longer exists anywhere. <laughs> but wow. they were living in Britain. <laughs> my mind the, the, blown the my giant mind. cave lion, the giant cave bear, sloths. <laughs> hold on. Even you name sloths, it. Sloths lived in England? I think so. Yeah, in the caves. Wow, that's I'm gonna to have to do some googling of these of these elephants because I just I can't believe there's that many different types of elephants that just don't exist anymore. Absolutely, and they were bigger than the elephants we've got now. Jesus, and apparently I don't know which one is bigger, the African or the Indian elephant, but one is bigger than the other. But these were much bigger than them. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And the the near dirthals they must have had a way of clubbing together in their hunting because you couldn't take down an animal that size on your own. It had to be like a gang thing. You I was going to say, so, you can't even do that with a modern elephant. It's difficult. So imagine absolutely. having to do one that's like twice the size of that. It's just unbelievable. Absolutely. And they only had spears. The bow and arrow hadn't been invented yet. Um, there's a big debate as to whether the Neanderthals were brainy enough. And, you know, things we say about Neanderthals, I mean, it's, it's a, such an insult. <laughs> were they brainy enough to throw spears? <laughs> I mean, it's now, it's now an insult, I mean, isn't it? You're such a Neanderthal. Come on, you know. <laughs> of course it's calling they someone were. stupid. It, it, I know. <laughs> We we seem to, and, and we do this through all times of uh, periods of history. I mean, even as modern as as the Second World War, which I work on, you make all of these assumptions about people that yeah. may not necessarily be as true. And for you, you're having to go back. What is it? Literally, nearly a million years. Yeah. Of, hundreds of that let's say hundreds of thousands hundreds of, years. of thousands of years yeah exactly and you can't necessarily say oh yeah they're all stupid like how do we know yeah. It, yeah, it, it's it's absolutely daft isn't it of course they were brainy enough to throw spears <laughs> i mean they hunted first of all that is not an easy thing to do is absolutely and bring so, and take down an elephant yeah exactly <laughs> absolutely exactly and then cut it up and distribute it all around everybody so everybody had a their fill of eating, you know. Uh, I mean, that takes organisation. It takes brains. So, of course, they were brainy. I think they were brainier than us. I think they were more artistic than us. They lived closer to nature. I've even got the theory that some of the cave paintings, or certainly some of the designs they find in the caves, may have been done by Neanderthals before they completely died out, that they were into that. They were into art. That's my theory. That's a personal theory. Interesting. Because Mm. you don't know who exactly made these drawings. You don't. You don't. You don't. And they may even have the dates slightly wrong. I mean, they might be older than they've said. They go, I mean, they've gotten going back to, what, 30, 35,000 years, something like that for the 
cafés in southern France and northern Spain, which were refugia, of course, from the Ice Age. The ice was still a mile high in Britain <laughs> when these cave paintings were being done. Um, who's to say it wasn't the Neanderthals doing them as well before they died out? We've talked about extinct animals, yes. but we also get extinct lands as well. So what, what was Dogger Land and what happened to it? Well, we've all heard of Dogger Bank, which was, uh, um, you know, when we all had, we had fishing fleets, which we don't seem to have anymore. When we had fishing fleets that set out across the North Sea, they, they all were always visiting Dogger Bank because it was a very good place for fishing. And it was a sort of slight rise in the seabed in the North Sea. So we now know that that was just the hill in Doggerland. The whole area right across to, say, Germany, Holland, Belgium, from the Wash, say, Norfolk, say, in East, Eastern Britain, that whole area was once dry, not covered in sea, and we've we've named it Doggerland, although some people don't like it being called that. Um, but I think it's actually a very good name. Dogger, everybody remembers it. And that whole area, that whole seabed, which is now under like about 100 feet of, of seawater, has been very carefully surveyed with the help of the oil industry they they poured a lot of money in and, and, and helped out. Uh, the whole area has been very carefully surveyed. And the most amazing landscape has revealed itself, which was once dry land. It was crossed by river valleys and there were gentle hills. There were forests. Um, it was a very pleasant place to live. It was not just the land bridge because people were actually settled there, they were actually living there. Um, we know this because it's the long tradition with fishing boats on the North Sea that every now and again, and not at all a surprise to the fishermen because they've seen it all before, up in their nets come all kinds of artefacts, you know, like and um, one of the main artefacts that comes up are these harpoons, made from deer antler, something I wish I could find. Yeah, I'm always looking out for artefacts like that. But, uh, you know, people were hunting on Doggerland and uh, just living there. Probably Mesolithic people, they, they weren't into farming yet, but they were still hunter-gatherers. But then along came the Storega landslide. Have you heard of the Storega landslide? No, you need to tell us more. Right. Oh, on the coast, the west coast of Norway, which is that really indented bit where it's nice to sail around, um, there is a large scar 300 miles long, which carries out under the sea right out to about 800 miles off Norway, this great scar in the seabed. And it it was the result of a gigantic landslide. And it was absolutely a huge, a huge event. 
and it would have caused a tsunami to wash across. That part of the sea was was actually sea, because Doggerland was further south. So if you but if you go off the coast of Norway, it was it was actually sea. So when this landslide, half the continental shelf of Norway just collapsed. And it would have caused a tsunami, something like 100 feet high, and it washed across the North Sea and caused an in, enormous scar right along that north, northeast coast of Britain, along the northeast coast of Britain and right up through Scotland, which can now be detected in a sort of line of sand. Very clever, the way they detect these things. But anyway, it, it caused, it must have caused devastation to people living in Britain at the time who would have been Mesolithic people. Because you're talking something like 8,100 and something BC. Now, they think that this might have been the start, this tsunami, it would have washed right across Doggerland. And they think that it caused such devastation that it never particularly completely receded. So this was the start of the inundation of Doggerland. And I hope I've described it accurately because a lot of work has gone into this. Um, and of course, they're still studying it. But after that, after that date of 8000 BC, gradually, the sea encroached because, of course, the sea was actually still rising at a certain amount per year from the melting of the ice of the last ice age, which really only ended about right eleven thousand BC, not that long ago. We're we're still in the throes of the end of the ice age. Let's stick with this topic yeah. because this is the topic that we're going to go on to next and that's talking about Mesolithic hunter-gatherers in Britain. What do we know about the Mesolithic era? We, we're learning more and more but the Mesolithics are quite difficult to study because they didn't live in big settlements, they didn't do a lot of building work, they didn't, do, they didn't put up monuments, uh, they were nomadic they just they followed the herds. They lived on marine resources like uh, they did leave shell middens everywhere because so we know where they were eating shellfish, even limpets. They seem to love limpets. They they picked a lot of hazelnuts and leave piles of hazelnut shells all over the place. But there are very few things like Mesolithic burials to study. So we don't have a lot of human remains. What we do have is very carefully curated and, you know, DNA studies are in pro progress on the various Mesolithic burials. So we are able to study them up to a certain amount. But um, the most famous Mesolithic site that we've found so far is in Star at Star Car in North Yorkshire. Now this was a set was a settlement, a small settlement, because they they found what looks like the footprints of houses, and it was right on the edge of something that we now call Lake Flixton, 
which was a large lake in North Yorkshire, which no longer exists. It's completely dried up. It was swampy and boggy for some time, but now it's just fields. But um, these people were living on the edge of this lake and hunting, gathering, fishing. And we found some extraordinary items. Uh, a great timber platform at the edge of the lake, which may or may not have been used for more easy access to the water. Um, but the most extraordinary thing that's been found at Star Car is these hat, deer headdresses made from um, the skulls of deer, still with antlers attached. And what they used to do was they they defleshed these skulls, they cut off the tops of the antlers, and they made holes in the skulls. But these weren't, weren't masks. They, the holes weren't for eyes. They were probably worn on top of their heads so that the holes were actually for twine to, to, to hold them onto their heads. Now, we don't know what they were doing, but they found over 30 now of these headdresses just at this one place. They've also been found in Europe. So this was a tradition at the time. Now, was it part of, you know, magic and ritual? Were they dancing around in these headdresses and trying to summon up the spirits of the animals? Or were they actually using them when they went out hunting, which would have been a bit awkward and ungainly? So probably they were just used in rituals. Up sympathetic magic to help with their hunting. But um, if they if they were using them at Star Car, they must have been using them, you know, everywhere. So this is something that we've learned at the Mesolithic too. And it, it, it points up that they, they had religion, they had belief, they had ritual. They had an you know another kind of life not just dedicated to finding food. They had a spiritual level to their life. That's what that's what these headdresses tell you. Uh, other than that, we don't know an awful lot about the, the the Mesolithic way of life. Although you of course you can you can study um tribe we're not allowed to call them primitive tribes anymore <laughs> because they are not. <laughs> their way of life is quite sophisticated. Um, but, you know, we we can study tribes that have only just come out of that sort of way of life. And, you know, the parallels are quite close between how we think the Mesolithics were living in Britain and how we find tribes living elsewhere. Um, very, it's a very interesting study. Next up, we get the uh, the Neolithic people coming in. How did what yeah. sort of time did they get to Britain, and what was different about them from what's come before? Quite a lot different. Now, what's mysterious is that the Neolithic people farming actually swept across Europe from the Middle East, as we know, from the Fertile Crescent, which was all around mm, southern Turkey right through Mesopotamia, down to Egypt and round part of the Mediterranean, the southern Mediterranean there. 
and that whole present of land is where farming began. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But, but we think there had been various experiments, short-term experiments in farming before that. But it, 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 it hadn't sort of really taken fire, taken on the way it did later in the Fertile Crescent. It then people seem to think, hey, this is a great idea. You know? <laughs> Instead of having to go out and chase animals and find where they are and you know, spend a week out just like chasing one deer, <laughs> why don't we herd them and um, live off them, you know, in, Bring them back to where we can control them, and um, it, this this is surely an easier way of life. Also, they had started gathering grasses by then, and finding grasses that were edible. They were they were already crushing seed to make flour and so on. So the two things came together: pastoralism and uh, growing grain. So this swept across from there, came into Europe, swept across Europe and got right to the English Channel (laughs) in northern France. And still it didn't reach Britain. And they apparently, it must have been at least 500 years in France before it crossed the English Channel to Britain. And that is one of these mysteries. Personally, I think that Britain was just too wild and woolly, (laughs) you know, to knuckle down to farming. I think we were still a bit a bit wild in this country. But anyway, eventually, um, it's thought there was this great debate. There was this great debate. Did the Mesolithics in Britain? finally realised that farming was actually quite a good idea and ta- and and start doing it? Or did people from Northern Europe come across and introduce farming into Britain? Well, that debate is now st- starting to get, you know, solved because of the use of DNA. It now looks like it was completely new people coming into Britain with their grain, with sacks of grain, with animals 
God knows how they brought the animals across in boats across the English Channel. They must have had them tied up or something, or in nets or something. But anyway, they brought the cows, they brought the pigs, they brought the goats, they brought the sheep, they brought the grain. <laughs> and they brought everything with them because nothing, none of that was in Britain before. And they did not come before 4000 BC. I personally looked into this and couldn't find any evidence of it before about 38, you know, 3800 BC, maybe even 37. But certainly by 3837, they were here, they were building, they were making earthworks, and um, they had herds here. And and they were they were growing stuff here. We know that for sure. But we think that they were new people from Europe. Why Britain was suddenly, you know, welcoming to them and they could come here and, and be okay, I don't know. What happened to all the Mesolithics? We've no idea. So what have the Neolithics left behind? What material culture is there that we can still see today? The first type of monuments they started building, they were very into monuments, the Neolithics. They were into monuments in Europe, certainly in northern France. There is There are monuments there that go back before 4000 BC. They were well into monuments before they ever came to Britain. So they started building monuments in Britain. The first type of monuments they seem to have built are these interrupted ditch circles that that imagine like a wagon train with the wagons that they used to pull up at night and go into a circle. Imagine that the wagons are ditches. You've got a circle of ditches with spaces in between where you can walk through between the ditches. And they they had these in France. And they, they tend to be quite large in diameter. So you could pack in several hundred people inside the circle. But why they built these things, we've no idea. There's one quite near Stonehenge. But anyway, it, it's, 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 it's within the Stonehenge landscape. But they, you can find them all over Britain. And why I personally think they were some sort of refuge, but other people, you know, archaeologists say, no, no, we think that these were just ceremonial meeting places where they all gathered in and 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 performed ceremonies there. Fine, fine, great. <laughs> that that that's perfectly possible. That was the first type of monument. Now, when they first came, they they were using communal burial. You didn't have like your personal private grave. Everybody in the village, in the settlement, whatever, got buried together. So they started building these things called long barrows. Uh, They tend to be anything up to 100 feet long. And they had had a sort of like false entrance at the front, but entrances down the side with chambers inside made of um, megalithic rocks standing on end. Um, and they buried people together. You find lots of bones scattered together in these chambers. And that's that's 
the first type of burials of the Neolithics. Later on, they start building like person barrows, you know, with just one burial in. Uh, but that came a lot later and was obviously some sort of change of culture. But when they first came, everything was communal. And it's thought that these long barrows were some sort of statement of ownership of land. If they built a long burrow, that was their land. And they were making a very definite statement about it. And it, and it made them feel like they belonged. So that was the first type of Neolithic culture that we can detect in the, in this country. Then, of course, they start building, um, the, some of the, the long burrows are, are aligned to the sun. So they had some sort of sun worship, I think. They were also, um, that, you know, the, the religion was now completely different. They brought completely different religions with them. Um, but they then start building, um, monuments which are def very definitely lined with the sun. You've got things like places like New Grange in Ireland. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's absolutely fantastic. But on a certain day of the year, <laughs> the sun shines directly down the long central passage of New Grange. So, you know. That sounds incredible. They, they were well into not only studying the stars, studying the sun, the movements of the sun, but, you know, they could build places where they could predict where the sun would be on a certain day. Now, how on earth did they do that? Again, brainy, you know, these people were brainy. And they, and they, they built the most magnificent monuments. But we come to Stonehenge later. I was just going to say that um, we've got quite a few of the, we've got about four or five long barrows around the Medway towns. So the most prominent one still being Kitscotty House, which is still standing. Indeed. Kitscotty, there's not much left mm. of it. There's only about, like, what, four or five stones still standing at Kitscotty. I've never actually visited it. Yeah. I've seen photographs. Um, but that is supposed to be the remnants of a, perhaps even the first <laughs> long barrow in Britain because it's very early. So, yeah, yeah Kitscotty. Um, because there are various debates about where the Neolithics first settled in Britain and what routes they took. Some people think they headed straight to Scotland from from northern France. Some people say, oh, no, 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 they, they, they just crossed over and then moved along the south coast. Um, some people think they came round into Kent first. Some people think they settled in Ireland first because a lot of the Irish monuments are very early. So we don't know what routes they took, but probably you're talking about, you know, more than one lot of people coming in. Probably they came in in family groups, clans, tribes even, maybe. We don't know. Because we don't know how they were organised. How they organised themselves. Were they clans? Were they tribes? Were they family groups? But anyway, we don't know quite how they came into Britain. But we can tell, you know, the difference in age between some of the monuments. And and as, as you say, Kitscoty 
is very early. So certainly they were in Kent very early, very early on. One one group certainly came into Kent when they first started coming here. So we've talked about, we, we've mentioned Stonehenge, so we should really get tackle it. Um, what, what do we know about Stonehenge and how it was built? We know absolutely nothing about why Stonehenge was built or what it represented. You've heard theories over the years. I've heard theories over the years. It was this. It was that. The truth is, we've no idea. Um, Stonehenge started in about 3000 BC as just a circle. Now, they certainly knew make circles. You just stick a stake, a stake in the in the ground, attach some twine to it, and then walk around in a circle. It's easy; anybody can do it. Um, so they, they were certainly building um, perfect circles. Stonehenge started off as this perfect circle in the chalk of Salisbury Plain, and they dug a series of holes around the edge of this circle, and they threw up. And they, they dug a ditch around outside the holes. And that's about it, really. We know, we've, we've discovered since, since the Aubrey, the, they're called the Aubrey holes because the chap called Aubrey first uncovered them and found them and found that they, they were a circle. Since then, there's been a theory, and I think it's pretty well proved by now, that probably a bit later after the, the holes were dug, they inserted blue stones into those holes, and also most of the holes contained cremated burials, cremated bone. Probably an uh, an individual or two or three individuals in each hole. So it was a kind of cemetery, and that's what that's all it was. That's all there was to Stonehenge, and that was for five hundred years. They had this cemetery. Now, why there? Nobody knows. Was it a special place? Or was it just, you know, a local ruler who had the, the say in that area and said, this is, this is where I want our people's cemetery. And so they built it there. But it, but it might have been more significant than that. Anyway, 500 years later, Oh, we haven't we haven't touched on the fact that the blue stones weren't local. Now we've we've known this for hundreds of years that those blue the blue stones that were that were originally in the holes weren't local. Because we know this because the blue stones were kept. They weren't just disposed of when they changed the whole monument five hundred years later. All they did was just move the blue stones further into the circle. So they were all closer together, but they still kept them. And we know that these blue stones were not local, and we think they were they were there from three thousand BC. Where did they come from? We found blue exact matching geologically the blue stones in West Wales on two different sites in the Preseli Hills in West Wales. We found stone that exactly matches the blue stones. There's two types um, of, of blue stone. 
They are, if I can find the two types of bluestone quickly. Yes, here we are. Uh, dolerite and rhyolite is the two type of bluestones. And they come from two, two uh, sites in the Priseli Hills called Khan Doedog and Craig Rossi Fellin. That's the two sites that have been investigated where the exact match has been found for these two types of stone. Question. Um, How the heck did they get those stones from where they originated from all the way to Stonehenge? Yeah, it's 140 miles. And they weigh about two to three, sto three, two to three tonne each. Exactly. Now, this is another ongoing debate. <laughs> How and why? Why bring over 60 stones weighing at least two tonnes each all the way from West Wales to Salisbury Plain? What was special about them that they needed them to encircle this cemetery? Well, for one thing, they were very, they're very pretty. If you wet them, if you wet a blue stone, you get the dark blue background and there's pale dots that look like stars. So did they represent the night sky? It could be. Um, I think, you know, they just admired them. But why bring them all the way from West Wales? How did they even know about them? You know, this, this is quite a remote area. You have to climb up to it. How did they know about them? This is all part of what I think is that, that they were very aware of the whole land of Britain and what was there by then. They were very aware, by 3000 BC, they'd been everywhere. They'd mapped it, you know, according to the sort of maps that they would make. They'd mapped it, they'd explored it, they'd surveyed it, they knew what was where. So they knew about these blue stones in Wales. But I, I put in, in my list of questions, did they steal them? Well, in the 1920s, there was a, a geologist called Herbert Thomas, and he came up with a very good notion, and that was, did they dismantle a previous stone circle that already existed in Wales? And just recently, within the last few years, they've been re-examining this idea. And they already knew that near to these two sites in Wales, there is a stone circle. Now, was it made up of bluestones? The, they found that the holes that made up the circle, there was only four stones still left, and they do resemble the bluestones from these two sites. And they've also found chunks of bluestone in these other holes. And the diameter of this circle it's the same as Stonehenge. That's interesting. Now, did they dismantle, deliberately dismantle this circle and say, we're taking it to Salisbury Plain? But why? <laughs> you know, why? And how? Now the debate is some people think they dragged them, they dragged them in sledges across land, across overland, all the way to Salisbury Plain. Now, an, another faction say, no, of course they didn't. That would have been far too difficult and taken far too long. They brought them right round the Bristol Channel, 
and along the south coast and up the River Avon to Stonehenge. That would have only been a, having to drag them a little way across the land once you'd got them as far up as Stonehenge, where because the River Avon actually goes up within a reasonable distance of Stonehenge. Not Stonehenge isn't right on it, but it's within a reasonable distance of Stonehenge. And then it goes carries on right the way up to Avebury, which is another gigantic monument. Ne Neolithic again, of course, but probably a different tribe from the one that built Stonehenge. So they, they, they got all the blue stones by 3000 BC. Whether they stole this monument in Wales, or was it some sort of cooperation, or was it the same people that built the monument in Wales who migrated to, to Salisbury Plain and were bringing, literally bringing the ancestors with them? You couldn't go without bringing your ancestors. So they upped, they pulled up all these stones and brought them to Stonehenge. Anyway, this, this cemetery seemed to have existed with its cremated bone in each hole for 500 years. And then they just seemed to have some new notions, some new ideas came in, probably new people. DNA suggests from various burials around the Stonehenge landscape that these were new people moving into Salisbury Plain and, and adjacent areas. Somebody got the idea of augmenting this old cemetery, which might by now have been completely overgrown and unrecognisable, and to make it into a brand new, very sophisticated and very unique in the world monument, because it is unique in the world. And they based it on a wooden buildings, because as we know, you've got they brought in local stone this time, as well as bluestone. They brought, they had the bluestones. As I say, they moved them further into the centre of, of the circle, into a different configuration altogether. But they augmented the bluestones with gigantic stones from the local Marlborough Hills. They were still 20 miles away. <laughs> and these gigantic stones weigh something like between 10 and 20 tons. <laughs> and they brought them from 20 miles away. But that easy peasy, easy peasy compared to bringing the blue stones from Wales. Anyway, and by then, I think they had very sophisticated ways of moving stones about. They, they've been dealing with stones for thousands of years. Anyway. They they erected these giant sarsens, as we know, in this very familiar configuration at Stonehenge, with two uprights and another one balanced along the top. But if you look at the way this has been done, it's exactly like you would build it out of wood. Because the uprights have got bumps in and the the bits across the top have got holes in, and you just fit the holes over the bumps. And that's just how you would do it. You know, these, these are joints. These are wooden joints. And they, they go all the way around in a circle. And was it ever roofed? 
Was it a giant building? We don't know. Because, of course, what we're pre presented with now and what we've been presented with since the Roman days, it was in ruins in the Roman days. So we've, we have this gigantic ruin. And we can only surmise, you know, what the original purpose was and how it originally looked. Um, but it, it, when it was new, it must have been absolutely amazing. And it is unique. And whoever designed it, there is this old, good old Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was a monk in, what, 11, 1200s. He wrote a series of annals of the history of Britain. And they think they, he made up half of it. But he says, there is an old tradition that Merlin the wizard built Stonehenge. Um, now, this is a very interesting notion, because is this an ancient memory of a very powerful and, and very clever, for want of a better word, um, individual who was behind the building of Stonehenge? But traditions don't tend to sort of last that long, but it's just possible that it is an old memory of somebody powerful like that who 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 was behind the building of Sony. Certainly someone who had a lot of clout. Um, because this took hundreds of people working for a long time to build that monument. And they think that the monument that we call Durrington Walls, which is just further along up the River Avon from Stonehenge, uh, and is quite a large monument in itself was actually once a Neolithic village. And we think that that's where the workers lived that built Stonehenge. It was seasonal work, but they certainly had houses there. Um, because the houses, the various houses have been excavated within Durrington Walls, which is this huge circular monument. And the houses have got floors that have been repaired several times, and each house has a, a large hearth in it. So they were lived in, and we think they were lived in seasonally, and that the, the work on Stonehenge was, was seasonal. So um, year by year by year, we're learning more and more about Stonehenge and how it got there and how it came there. But, you know, it's still a very great mystery, but unique. And that was in about 2,500 that the um, the blue stones were moved out of the holes uh, into the centre and augmented with the giant sarsen stones to make the present configuration, which is now in ruins. It, the, the Romans are known to have messed Stonehenge about quite a bit. They were there and, and they certainly moved some of the stones. Uh, so, yeah, this has been really interesting we've actually covered something god knows how many thousands of maybe millions of years of, millions. <laughs> of history from uh yeah all, all the way up to bollock daggers um so, <laughs> but uh, thanks very much for coming on and telling us about it and uh we'd love to have you on again at some point well i hope you get something useful out, out of what i've said yeah our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book this is just a small taster. As a result, 
we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.